0: I realized this is what good therapy is. This is what bad therapy is. This is what I've been missing for 15 years of my life. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life because there were no therapists of color that I saw. There were a lot of things that came up that had to do with my culture that required a lot of explaining. When I started talking about it with my community, I realized I wasn't alone in this. I wasn't the only person going through this, but rather, quite a few people in my community who've experienced similar things, they just don't have access to the resources. So what can I do to make sure that they do? My name is Sonia Sony, and I'm a modern minority) <laughs>
2: but we're no one's model minority.
1: This is a show about all of you for all of us.
2: Today, we're chatting with Sonia Sony, a South Asian mental health advocate who is studying clinical psychology. Sonia co-hosts a podcast called Loudmouth Uh Ludki means girl in Hindi, which uh, and it's a show that focuses on the intersection of South Asian and Western identities with an emphasis on mental health. Sonia does this with her longtime friend and former debate adversary, Sapna. Uh, and, but Sonia's early career has really been at the intersection of mental health and tech, and she's hoping to improve access to mental health services. She's a student of psychology and criminal justice. She's conducted research on BIPOC mental health. She's implemented suicide prevention strategies. She's spoken publicly about the importance of not just representation, but cultural understanding in mental health care. The Jed Foundation, the Epic Foundation, Morgan Stanley, MTV, and CNN. And Sonia is a friend of a friend. A uh, friend of the pod, Jay Veraldi, introduced us recently. And it was just really fun to kind of revisit some friend of friend conversations, which we haven't done as much of lately, Sharon. So what'd you think of Sonia?
1: Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. And I'm, and I think any friend of Jay's is always a friend of ours. So it was just really great to meet with someone that is in the same space as us. I mean, she, her podcast literally aims to do very similar things than as ours. And I liked how open she was. I liked that we talked about all sorts of things, from dating to family relationships to explaining what dance teams are.: Dance team, <laughs> yeah, dance team things to, to, you know, bonding over a poet that we both love. And she's really passionate about mental health, and I think, I think in her vulnerability and her willingness to share her own story, I learned a lot about what that process looks like, but also the challenges of being in an immigrant culture where mental health isn't something that is widely accepted, right? And and I mean, we've talked about this a lot too in our previous episodes, but we tend to, as immigrants or, or especially in Asian culture, brush that stuff under the rug. Like we don't want to talk about the yucky stuff. We don't want to face the fact that someone might not be quote unquote healthy mentally. And Sonia's been through that herself and the fact that she's not only been through those experiences but is now an advocate for change is, is
2: pretty amazing. It's a really powerful conversation and yeah. we think you're going to enjoy hearing from our friend, Sonia. Sonia, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So we have a mutual friend and That kind of makes you infamous, but I guess what (laughs) folks who might have already heard you online, right, what they might want to know is, uh, where are you from?
0: So I am based in California. Um, I grew up here for the most part, and I've lived kind of all over the United States,
2: Huh. Oh, I, first of all, I hear a lot of people drink matcha in California. That's
1: what the kids are telling me these <laughs> days. That's what all the hip people do anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely, I definitely sit into that stereotype. I will <laughs> own that.
1: Do you ever get
2: asked, where are you really from?
0: Yes, all the time. Every time someone asks me, where are you from? I always clarify before I even answer. I'm like, are you asking me in a racist way or are you asking me in a normal way? <laughs> do you call them out? Do you call them yes, out? Yes, absolutely. No. Absolutely.
1: Whoa. And so has anyone ever, ever owned up to that? Are they like, no, well, actually uh, was- no, yeah. yeah, no, never. <laughs> yes, I'm being a racist. I'm totally right being now. racist.
0: <laughs> and it's always on dating apps. It's always on dating apps. And they're like, where are you from? I'm like, okay, wh- what-, what answer
1: do you want? You're the first person to mention that. The dating app thing. So in the dating app, how do you indicate ethnicity or do you not at all?
0: I do. I do. There are certain dating apps that allow you to share your ethnicity and Mm -hmm. also share, like choose whether you want to make that visible or disable that. Right. And so I always uh, make it visible on my end.
2: I am so glad I'm aged out. Well, I'm not aged out. I'm so glad I'm life-staged out of dating apps. Everything I hear about them scares me and gives me anxiety and just like, oh Oh, it's horrible.
0: It's such a horrible experience. Would not wish it on anybody. Well, I feel like,
1: you know, and I have not been on a dating app because I too have aged out or or life-staged out. But Roman, I feel like it's equivalent to like when you and I were on like Friendster back then, or, you know, I was like part of Asian Avenue, like- Back then, you had to just manually find people. Now, I think you put in a couple of parameters, and then all of a sudden, your ideal persona pops up. So it's just, it's more efficient, I would think.
0: (laughs) Is it, Sonia? Is it? Um, I think it it definitely brings up problems of, like, the conversation around around racial preferences Mm. and whether that's okay or not. So that's definitely something I've noticed in the dating app world is like you have that option mm-hmm. and it feels like it's definitely teetering on a problematic line. I feel like,
2: and I promise, or your parents didn't put us up to this. <laughs> <So> yeah, but <laughs> but I, 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 the thing that scares me about dating apps is like the same anxiety I feel around like Netflix or Yelp. Like it takes me forever to decide because I'm so particular. It must be this. It must be that. It must be that. The serendipity has been taken out of just walking to a restaurant or turning on the TV. and. I think it like increases people's particular le- learnness. Like you think yeah, that's the thing you care about. Where in reality, like if you had asked young Roman who like the person you're going to end up as this, like that's not who I ended up with. Right. And it's working.
1: Mm. Yeah. And
2: when you're filling out the dating app, you're thinking, you know, your preferences, but I don't think you really do know them.
1: Yeah. Same. I would say the same for me. I had, I wasn't on dating apps because they weren't in existence. We're time. Old. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't exist. But there were dating websites where you could check off, you know, even everything from like height to income. Like I don't even, I, you know, I don't know if the dating apps have that anymore, but like I was very particular with who I thought my Mr. Right was. And I ended up marrying someone who's wonderful and who is like my perfect partner. And he would not have... Met a lot of those criteria. One being Chinese American. I thought I was going to marry. I thought I wanted to marry someone who was Asian, and in particular Chinese. And I married a black guy who's Caribbean American. So, Sonia,
2: here's here's the auntie question uh, for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> love the
0: auntie question. Yeah.
2: What 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 dating apps are you using? Oh what are, my your God. oh what are the boxes you're checking? Oh
0: my gosh, you're airing me out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think of all the dating apps, the one that I use, I've like liked and not hated and not deleted, um, is
1: Hinge. Okay, I've heard good things about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it's supposed to be the dating app that's designed to be deleted, and I'm a chronic deleter, so I like delete it every couple weeks, and I'm like, okay, we're restarting fresh in a few months when I'm back at this
1: again. <laughs> <laughs> so, it sounds like a drug problem. <laughs> So on Hinge, does it show like last last deleted or like, you know, profile created on?
0: No, it doesn't actually. It'll, it'll tell you if someone's recently joined.
1: Okay. But yeah. when you delete it, do you have to rejoin when you reinstall it? Or is it just like, like you're just removing it from your phone? You can and then- choose,
0: yeah, you can choose if you want to deactivate your account or mm-hmm. if you want to
1: delete your account completely. Wow. Interesting. Huh. I'd almost, as a nerdy marketer, I'd want to interview someone at Hinge and just ask them like, what's the percentage of like retention and like how long, you know, like on average, how long do people keep this app on their phones? And then on average, how often do they reinstall? Because that's, you know, from a conversion rate perspective, that's like your your metric of success. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, a hundred percent. And it's so interesting because, like, if you talk to people my age, they would probably tell you they delete it very, very often, and then download
1: it yeah. at the same rate as well. Right. That's that's the beauty of youth, right? It's like you're, so <laughs> you're optimistic. Like, you meet someone and it, and you think you're ready to get off of Hinge and start your life together. And three weeks in, you're like, oh no, he doesn't. Well, whatever, that's, pick that's up one, his socks. I think that's you know, one side of it. <laughs> I think the other side of it is like
0: you're on it and then you're like, why am I on here? And then you delete it.
1: Oh, interesting. So here I am thinking everyone's falling in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: absolutely not. No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So now that we've like covered the most awkward territory for us, I feel like we can go
2: anywhere. <laughs> yes. I guess and what's what's interesting is there, I do actually think there is a link to the thing that as I understand you and I've, you know, listened to your podcast a bit now. And, you know, heard about you through a mutual friend. I I know mental health is kind of, that's your jam, like, right? Like, understanding and working in that space. But I guess before you kind of found that calling, who were you before all of that, before you began the journey towards it? Like, I don't know, what'd you want to be when you grew up?
0: Yeah, I think it changed quite a bit. So when I was really young in elementary school, I really wanted to be a Disney Channel actress. And my VC parents. As we all do. As we all do, do, right? (laughs) I I really thought I could be the next Hannah Montana, Selena Gomez. I
1: still believe that I could have. Yeah, you still can can today. You can. (laughs) It's just, it's called TikTok and not Disney Channel. That's all. Yeah, I don't
0: think I would survive on TikTok. Yeah, speaking of mental health guys. Right, exactly.
2: Exactly.
0: But uh, my VC parents were not very happy with that decision. Of career path, and mm-hmm. I was <laughs> turned away from that very quickly. <laughs> and then it was, I wanted to be a journalist for a little while, and I kind of got involved in it. I was like, a, if you know Scholastic News for Kids, like Time yeah. magazine yeah. has its own kids' branch, and I was a reporter for them in middle school. And I was like, very set. I was like, I'm gonna be a journalist. They parents did not like that as well. Wait, what, what do what one no? of the
2: headlines look like in Scholastic Kids? Like, what were what one were of the stories?
0: Um. Well, so when I worked for Time for Kids, when I was a reporter for them, I did a story with, I met Christy Yamaguchi at a oh, cool. ice skating rink because she had just written a sequel to a children's book. Um, and so I got to interview her about that.
1: That's very cool.
0: It was really cool. I felt very, it was it was really cool. I wish I got to be on the ice with her, but I think it would have been the most embarrassing thing yeah. <laughs> I would have ever experienced. <laughs> All right, but that, that's a pretty big get.
2: Yeah. But that's still not good enough resume fodder for, for mom and dad, it sounds like. What did,
1: what, what did mom and dad want you to be?
0: Uh, so they didn't actually want me to be anything. So I think oh. in that sense, my, my parents were a little bit different from the traditional... Indian, American, South Asian expectation of like, you have to be an engineer, doctor, lawyer, whatever. My dad was a businessman. And so like selfishly wanted me to go into business. And I knew that that was not the route that I wanted to go into. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, it was, I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was kind of where I was until I, I was fully entrenched in the world of mental health. And I was like, no, I want to be a psychologist. And that's kind of where my head has been at since, yeah, since junior year of high school.
2: How, how does one become entrenched in the world of mental health before choosing to study it?
0: Uh, they get put in mandated therapy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I experienced a lot of mental health issues throughout my life from a very young age. I just wasn't aware of it, hmm. as I'm sure you both know, just like, Being in an immigrant Asian American community, uh, mental health is not discussed. It's very Mm -hmm. taboo. The language around it doesn't really exist. And this idea of why would you share things inside the home with people who don't live inside your home or Mm, in your community? And so that was really what kept things under wraps until my sophomore year of high school. I had attempted suicide. I was then placed in mandated therapy. And then that's kind of where I I was like seeing therapists very regularly and realized this is what good therapy is. This is what bad therapy is. This is what I've been missing for like 15 years of my life. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life because there were no therapists of color that I saw when I was there. and. There were a lot of things that came up that had to do with my culture that required a lot of explaining. And when I started talking about it with people in my community, I realized how many more of us there were than I expected. And it wasn't this like, I'm alone in this. I am the only person who is going through this, but rather there are Quite a few people in my community who have experienced similar things. They just don't have access to the resources. So, what can I do to make sure that they do?
1: Yeah. When you talk about good therapy versus bad therapy, what are, how would you define good therapy?
0: I would define good therapy as culturally responsive mm-hmm. and validating and supportive. So, a few things that I've noticed over time is, you know, therapists that even if they are white, like since I've experienced good therapy, I've only worked with cis uh, straight white males as therapists. Hmm. And it's hmm. worked out because they were culturally responsive. Yeah. They were very aware of the fact that they didn't understand things about my culture, but made the effort to learn and did not place the onus of responsibility on me to have to explain everything, right? A culturally responsive therapist doesn't need to be the same, doesn't need to have the same background as you, though I would argue it's really helpful and very validating and important, but if they have been trained in a way to recognize different cultural backgrounds, recognize different issues that come up and don't, make their client the one that has to explain all of these things. Don't make their client the one that has to teach them all of these things. Yeah. I think you can have like a healthy rapport and healthy therapeutic relationship.
1: Yeah. And do you think gender had anything to do with that as well?
0: I think so. Um, so actually my first therapist ever was a South Asian woman. Oh, interesting. And... I had the worst experience. I was going to say that actually makes
2: me have more anxiety. <laughs> yeah. And I, I use the term very um, intentionally. Yeah. Because I st- have struggled with depression and anxiety like my mm-hmm. entire life. But like I get more, maybe it's a generational thing, you know, and it's a parent thing. I don't know. But like the auntie class is my kryptonite. Yeah. I don't know.
1: And it's because these, when you're in those rooms, it feels like they're, I mean, they're obviously putting their own experiences in it, whether or not they mean to. And that's what's triggering. I mean, I put some of it on me. Yeah. Again, their effectiveness,
2: I don't know in, in your experience, Sonia, but it's just like uh, I see reflections of kind of what I came out of. It. And maybe I haven't yeah. I've chosen them not to face that. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, so I actually, my not a therapist, but my primary care physician is an older Indian woman. She's only like 10 or 15 years older than me. So I'm more like an older sibling age-wise than an auntie. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, I still mentally think and act like I'm a little younger than I am. And so I still feel like this <laughs> generational differential when I'm with my doctor. And it it's, just, it's fine, you know, like I haven't had to see her much during the pandemic. But it's just like when I hear her get on to me about my cholesterol. Yeah, <laughs>
1: like, yeah, 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 yeah. But
2: yeah. so I, I just, so Sonia as, as talk to us more about that. Like what was... What was your issue with someone, you know, who looks like you, who comes from you? But I would argue generationally, she probably wasn't facing the same things as you.
0: Yeah, I think, like, I, I totally hear you on the the seeing them as an auntie sort of yeah. um, fear and anxiety around that, right? Because it's like, you're so used to seeing these people, seeing this age group respond in a certain way. And the fear of someone that's supposed to be a primary care physician or a therapist or someone that is in a position of caring that has all of this confidential, privileged information. Can you imagine an auntie having that? That's terrifying.
2: And no disrespect, like I I know these aunties now from my earlier life and they're warm loving. I see them as adults and humans more than these kind of
1: pillars or-
2: (laughs) <laughs> no, no, like I, no,
1: because here's
2: Yeah. You know, I, I no, get a little dark. We're now at the age where our share and I are, right? Where the aunties are passing away, yeah. their husbands, their partners are passing, their kids, tragedy is happening in our world. And, you know, I, I'm starting to see my parents' generation as people now that I'm experiencing mm. the life stages they were going through when. When I first saw them as a little kid, I'm now at that age, right? Like I have little Mm -hmm. brown and golden kids calling me uncle now. So I, I feel the anxiety and stress and can't imagine it in a world where I was a foreigner or in a world where I didn't have the internet or, you know, the kind of cultural code switching that I know how to do that our parents' generation didn't. So I see them more now, but to your point, I can't help. Maybe it's because you're in a position of being cared for, like kind of revert back to those patterns. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that definitely plays a role in it, that position of being cared for. But like my experience, I would say, is very unique. Hmm. Like my experience with that South Asian woman Hmm. um, who was my first therapist was very unique because it being a bad experience had nothing to do with her being South Asian. Hmm. Okay. It was her training and her. She's like, just
2: a, she's just bad at her job.
0: Bad therapist, <laughs> like oh my god, the HIPAA violations. It was oh, just wow bad, and so <laughs> I feel really like I definitely feel sad about that because so much of my journey, like my professional journey, is. I want to be a therapist that looks like the people that I'm treating. Yeah. And my only experience with that was bad. But I, I I do know like from friends that are currently in grad school and training, like they experience this too with like clients a few years younger than them feeling that that anxiety around, okay, if I talk to someone who looks like me, will this get out into my community. Hmm. And will everybody I know now know that I seek therapy or know why I seek therapy or know the things that I'm talking about in these sessions because our community while there are so many of us feels really small in how we are all connected and how we all tend to know each other.
1: Yeah. It's really it's it's interesting. I'm reflecting upon my own experience in therapy and I had intentionally sought out a female provider because I felt like um I would be able to relate to her more, which is why I asked about gender because I think mm-hmm. for me like and I was kind of going to therapy almost like as a routine just self-care thing but in my 20s talking a lot about dating I just felt like I I wanted someone in the room that would able to relate to that on a much more like identity but at the same time i can see if i was if i was seeing someone that was of the same race gender and connected to other people within my community i would definitely feel like that that veil of anonymity or like that shield would have disappeared right so i i totally hear that and i feel that And now,
2: a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services.
1: Wait, what? Didn't we already encourage everyone to get their vaccine?
2: And boosters. Of course. And boosters, dude.
1: What do you think this is? Amateur hour?
2: Sure thing, Sharon. But as you can tell from the leaves outside, it's autumn. I live in LA. As the rest of us can tell from the leaves outside, it's autumn, a.k.a. my favorite time of the year.
1: Ah, yes. Autumn. A time for harvest festivals and family reunions...
2: Don't you mean mid-autumn moon
1: festivals? And festivals of light?
2: And football season?
1: Okay, dude, enough with the sci-fi fake news. We all know you're just watching more Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Lord of the Rings after your kids are asleep.
2: Okay, okay, fine. But all that other non-streaming stuff this fall involves family and friends.
1: That's right. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you're 50 or older, you're at the greatest risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease.
2: This is literally something my better half and I have been talking about for the fall before we see our parents again.
1: Same here. So we want to make sure that all of you are ridiculously smart and influential favorite podcast listeners. Get your latest, greatest COVID vaccine.
2: That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff. So we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love today. Because honestly, we ain't the spring chickens we used to be. COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in.
1: Protect all of our tomorrows this fall with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free.
2: Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov.
1: We can do this together.
2: The spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We are big fans of it.
1: But now, back to our show.
2: How does, for both of you guys, you're both, uh, Sharon, I actually don't know about you, but Sonia, like what, you have been outspoken about your experience with mental health, beyond your work in mental health. And as you started to be more public about that, what was the response from your community about that? How did they react?
0: Yeah, Um, it was definitely not positive at first. Mm. Experienced a lot of backlash, a lot of attempts of like push it under the rug, silencing, a lot of like, why would you share this in public? Hmm. And that was unfortunately that came from both like people my age and also like aunties and uncles in the community and I think the it coming from people my age was the harder part because i I expected it to come from people who were older in my community, yeah, just knowing how that world works, but I also heard from people that. I had known for years and had never known that they had also struggled with similar things. And then I heard from people that I had never met in my life who reached out and said, you know, I read what you were writing about. I like heard your story and I felt very like seen or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am also going through something similar. And this is, you know, made me feel a little bit more comfortable to seek therapy. Yeah. And I've been very, very blessed and lucky that as time has gone on, my family has been incredibly supportive. My mom has been so, so supportive of my mental health journey. She's been on it alongside with me. She is now the auntie that like, Recommends therapy to all of her friends and the friend and her friend group that people come to when they have questions about how to seek therapy. the side of my family that was supportive and I continue to you know keep in touch with and associate myself with have been incredibly supportive when I speak out about it very publicly and that's been incredible and it's been very heartwarming to see how access to language and access to understanding in a way that worked in their lens made it so much easier for them to come on board.
1: Yeah. Were they initially this open or did it take some doing and at what point did they kind of come over to where they are now?
0: So one side of my family was not open at all Mm -hmm. and very dismissive of it and definitely believed that I did not need help Yeah. And the other side of my family kind of was more concerned about what was happening. And so I think they were more trying to understand what was going on and trying to understand what I needed. Yeah, And that difference of defensiveness versus wanting to understand, I think, was the key part that led to that divergence of one group of people actually being able to support me over time and one group of people not.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I think um, when I had first told my own family that I was seeing a therapist, my, my parents were like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, well, because I'm talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go lot, down? Like, you know, <laughs> well, not what? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely like, they were like, whatever, Sharon. But <laughs> what ended up happening was the dynamics within our relationships started to change because I suddenly had all of these tools and language and a different understanding of, of how our relationships were impacting each other, right? So whether or not they knew it, they also were seeing a therapist through me. Mm. And it was really kind of transformational like within those couple of years because it just it strengthened our relationships in different ways. And, you know, I mean, they, to this day, probably don't even realize like that that was happening, but I was able to carve out different ways of relating to them that were just much more healthy for myself. And so it was, it all ended up being fine, but it is really interesting because, you know, I think usually, at least in my own family, because they knew that they were a core part of those conversations, they were even more dismissive, right? Mm. They were even more in denial. Like, well, we, we haven't done anything to you. That you know requires you to go seek out professional help for this. Yeah. But I'm like, it's not really about that. It's more about me just understanding how I can whatever create boundaries or strengthen bonds with other people.
0: Yeah, I think the part about boundaries is probably the biggest thing that I have seen like my friends go to therapy for. Uh, I've seen like conversations about within like the children of an immigrant community that you are going to therapy to learn how to set boundaries. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of defensiveness, I think, that can come from parents when you try to set those boundaries, especially like speaking very broadly, Asian parents, Asian immigrant parents, because of this idea that, well, I've done all these things for you. We moved to this country. We fought for all these opportunities. Why? Would you make me feel bad about that? And it's almost this like guilt. They probably don't even know that they're causing. And this idea of boundaries is, you know, it really goes against like the collectivist nature that a lot of our families have grown up in.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, they grew up in the collectivist nature because this has, I think, okay, never mind the perception of mental health over there in the motherland right but like the constructs existed inside of the society right because multi-generational homes and there's a whole level of politicking that happens in the villages right but like versus coming over here in this complete isolation but you know that guilt factor i think subconsciously goes both ways of the we brought you here to do all of these things and you know, how can you not appreciate it? But on the flip side, it's like, you brought us here and you have all the expectations of back there, but you brought us here. Right. That was like the classic argument that my sister and I would have. And I think our entire generation has had is like, we're fine here. We didn't have a choice and we like it here. I, you know, I like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I like pizza, but also we have to make this work. Like we're both in foreign territory, pun intended, right? Right. Like, Right. You're out of your element because you left the motherland. You're raising kids in a societal construct that you're not culturally prepared for. And I'm just a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like I got I got hormones and other problems. <laughs> right. And I'm just trying to figure out who I am. And so much of that is also like creating, it then creates codependence. It creates a whole lot of other, a lot of other things I learned about in my 20s as I was talking to my therapist. So it's really, really interesting.
2: I, I think this tension exists for, I mean, any this country is unique, but not—we're not the only ones where this happens. But like, I—I I guess every generation has its own societal norms and differences. But when you throw a culture like against it as well, like a massive culture difference of moving to another country and leaving the norms and the constructs behind, uh, I think this tension is going to emerge. It's—it's it's inevitable. You're kind of blind if you don't think it will. But, um, Sonia, I want to shift gears a little bit because you also have a podcast. <laughs> I've heard. Yes. And uh I have so many questions. But the the first one is I mean, it's called Loudmouth Ludkeys. And uh which means ludki means girl in Hindi. Uh and, and you and your friend, you know, are two South Asian American women talking about your experiences and your identities. And it's more conversational about you guys talking about the moment. And I, I guess why? Like what was the impetus for doing this? And what were you hoping to do? I mean Sharon and I like, could talk at length about why we do this, why we keep doing it and how we face the tensions of keeping doing it. But I'm, I'm always curious when I meet other people who are crazy enough to do <laughs> what we do with microphones. Like, yeah. W- what is it about? Why did you do
0: it? So my, my co-host, Sepna, and I, we were both very outspoken teenagers in high school. We both... <laughs> <laughs> We both did speech and debate, and that's how we met. We didn't go to high school together, um, and we met through speech and debate. And through that, we kind of had, you know, one level of, of similarity. We were both South Asian women who were very passionate about talking about things that were taboo or stigmatized, particularly, you know, on one hand we were we were trained to be public speakers and debaters and so in that sense we were we were in that space but we also both really enjoyed leveraging that space to talk about issues that we were very very passionate about and as time went on we both realized that we were also both really passionate about mental health and destigmatizing mental health within the South Asian community and I Have always, you know, been somewhat in touch with my Punjabi culture. But when I went to college in Philadelphia, I was, you know, of course, away from home. And something just clicked in me that I needed to be more a part of my culture. I was already on a dance team, like a cultural dance team. And I felt. Can you,
2: sorry, can you explain? I, I know what that is, <laughs> even though that's a weird thing for me. Uh, explain, because what is that? Uh,
0: yeah, What's so cultural mean? dance teams. <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, so uh, I was on a Bhangra team. Bhangra is a traditional Punjabi dance, but cultural dance teams, like so think South Asian dance teams in the United States, uh, and I would argue Canada and the UK as well, are kind of almost cult-like. Um, there <laughs> There, so, like, most college campuses will have collegiate dance teams that are either Bollywood or Bhangra or Ra, Garba. These are all different types of South Asian dances. And the South Asian students will dance on these teams and we compete across the nation. And it's a really, like, it's a, it's a sub-culture. really, really... It's a subculture. It's definitely a subculture. Like we have entire Facebook groups that are full of like thousands and thousands of undergrads and grad students. Like we have our own we have our own memes. We have our own TikToks. We have our own music. <laughs> we have our own culture. There is an obsession with Taco Bell. I think there's a whole podcast subculture. or a Hulu
2: documentary on this. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah. There's there has to be a documentary on this. I firmly believe that. <laughs> all right, to, sorry. We, we no, got a no, no tangent, I think but it's, I really, I think you it's know, a worthwhile
2: when someone tangent. says something that I know our <laughs> guests haven't heard of, like, yeah, we have to go. We I think go it's there. a
0: worthwhile tangent for sure. So if you ever end up down that rabbit hole, it's a worthwhile rabbit hole.
1: <laughs> if there's like one YouTube video folks should watch to get a mm. sense, can you, can you recommend it? Yeah, one? if
0: you look up DDN Legends... That is our okay. like.
1: I love that you just had it. you just had <laughs> yeah, it. You knew I, I it already. Knew, I knew like, she would know. <laughs> oh, she was okay. gonna have to like I'll get it. I'll, I'll send you the link after. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, know, but I, I everybody clearly knows about DDN I had Legends. A <laughs> we'll we'll link that in the show notes. Yes.
0: DDN Legends. That's our that's our NFL.
1: DDN Legends, amazing.
2: (laughs) All right, I don't even remember. Uh, Something, 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 my identity, college
1: dance team. right? So I was on this
0: college dance team and I was like, you know, I should feel like I am the most connected to my culture at this point, but I wasn't. I didn't feel that like internal sense of, yeah, I feel, you know, like I'm, I'm content with this, with my identity. And so I started consuming a lot of South Asian art Um, I found a bunch of Instagram accounts, a bunch of different digital artists and who were creating diasporic art. They were all South Asian. They all created art that was representative of that hyphenated experience. I started consuming a lot of like literature by South Asian um, writers. I sought out Small businesses that were, you know, South Asian based or created by and owned by. And once I started doing that, I felt, okay, I feel a little bit more at peace with my identity in the sense of I feel more secure in who I am because I, this is an identity that I have created and not one that was given to me. And so I came back to the Bay, up and I started talking about it and I dragged her to this this like soft launch opening of a fusion restaurant in San Francisco where one of my favorite artists, like South Asian artists was, she had designed all the artwork. And on our way there, we were like joking. There's the meme that's like, oh, millennials have a meaningful conversation. And then they're like, yeah, we should start a podcast. That was literally the conversation we were having on our way to this restaurant. we get there and we listen to these two incredible South Asian women who have pursued careers that are not traditional. One was the woman who had opened this restaurant. She was in her mid to late 50s or early 60s. She'd never cooked. And she had recently found the joy in Gujarati cooking. And she was like, you know what? I want to open a restaurant. I want to share Gujarati cuisine with Like the US. And the other was a Muslim Canadian woman who became an artist and, like, very much veered away from what her parents wanted her to do, but was creating this beautiful artwork that was speaking to so many young South Asian women who lived in the diaspora. And just listening to both of them talk about their journeys and how fulfilling it was and how it really solidified their journey with their identity. We kind of both walked away from that. We're like, you know what? We're going to do a podcast. We're going to do a podcast about being South Asian women, talking about the issues that we're really passionate about and talking about them from a lens of being South Asian women who have grown up in the U.S. And we started it literally just as a passion project. We did not expect anybody to listen to it. And then it kind of picked up and we realized that there were people that resonated with what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And it was worth, you know, doing more of.
2: Yeah, there's a real unapologetic nature to not just how you talk about stuff, but the choices on the things you want to talk about, what you choose to talk about. I guess, similar to the earlier question about therapy, because sometimes I feel like the podcasts are therapy when Sharon and I go on these hiatuses sometimes we feel like a piece of us is missing mm. of the things that we're thinking and talking through but what did your family and friends think of the pod once you started putting that out there because that's that's a little more public <laughs> than you saying
0: yeah you know, it's definitely a, a little bit more public i think so actually my my mom has
1: not listened to the podcast same i feel like <laughs> i don't i don't get it like and I have three. And I think, my, my I think th- mine, mine listens, but she'll never tell me or admit to it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I think she does. Because we, um, so mom, if you're listening, I'm going to tell you this, mom. So we, we send out. And so that's literally our podcast email address is Hi, mom exactly. at mommypod.com. Mom, mom, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we, we send out email newsletters at least once a week. So I can, I can see who opens them. <laughs> right? And my mom opens almost every single newsletter. But she's never mentioned that she's listened. But she's never clicked. That's amazing. That she, that she's she never clicked. But like, if she's you know she's listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or something, like she doesn't necessarily have to click through. Your mom has like a burner <laughs> phone. She can't. So let she's, you know. Yeah. So she's quite engaged, but she'll never. She's never actually told me she's listened. <laughs> oh my god! I love that. We should keep testing the limits. Just like
2: keep spilling family secrets. And oh, seeds. you have like little right pockets
1: of. Hey, mom! Remember
0: this in each episode, right? Yeah, yeah. But my totally. sister my
2: sister listens, and every once in a while when I like dig out a story, I'll get a text and she my sister's like probably always four or five episodes behind because like me, she's a parent and has no time for anything. But I'll get a text where she's like, That's not what happened. <laughs> and I was like, What episode are you talking about? I don't remember half of these conversations. <laughs> like I I I said that you say that wrong. I actually remember the impact that the guest makes on me. Like, you're doing me a favor. Sorry <laughs> if I, mean, I don't remember half the shit I say because I'm working through stuff, yeah. you know, always on this show.
0: Yeah, I I totally feel that. <laughs> yeah, so my mom doesn't listen to it and I berate her all the
2: time. <laughs> that you know of, you and know And I'm like,
0: up, no, 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 I know she doesn't because I ask her to listen. And she's like, I'll get to it. Oh. And I'm like, can you, mm. I've been doing this for like, it's five seasons now. Can you please listen to
2: it? I think that freaks me out a little bit is um, Sharon's kids are a little older than mine. Uh, so they have devices, I would assume. My daughter is six going on seven. And I'm putting this body of work out there. Like the amount of hours of me talking to people about things is out there. At some point, she's going to listen to it and she's going to like use it against <laughs> me. <laughs> I just gave her that idea in the year 2028. <laughs> oh,
1: when she I think that's incredible, episode. Dad! Remember the time when you said this? Yeah, perfect.
0: Podcaster's daughter. I feel like that would that would be a lot of great content right there.
2: <laughs> She's going to be taking it to therapy sessions. Um, no, sorry, I. Uh, well, so something you mentioned on one of the episodes I listened to is that most of your audience is from the South Asian and Indian. Diaspora. And again, you're unapologetic putting that perspective. But I guess what's your goal with them? And then what do non Daisies think mm. when they hear it? Or are they?
0: Yeah. So we wanted to create a podcast for the South Asian diaspora. Like that was really important to mm-hmm. us. We wanted mm-hmm. to create it for people around our age that were like experiencing similar things mm. to start conversations about. Topics they may not have thought about or maybe have thought about, but have not been able to talk about. So I think a lot of the the feedback we've gotten from them has been that they really resonate with the things that we're saying. That we're talking about issues that they either have not, you know, dove into themselves or... It gives them a different perspective on the issues that they're already thinking about or already having conversations about. It gives them, you know, an opportunity to kind of start these conversations with people they might not be starting these conversations with, primarily parents or non see friends and family. I think the friends and folks that have listened to the podcasts that are not they is a definitely smaller demographic. But from those that I've heard from, it's been a lot of, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to like listen to this type of perspective. It's not something that I would have thought about. It's, it's kind of what I think Ramanu you said earlier about like this, this idea of, oh, I'd never thought about it this way. And that's mainly the sentiment that we get from the folks that listen um, who are not Daisy.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it's like empathy and understanding. Like I, Sonia, I don't, I mean, I can relate to some of your experience, but I don't fully get it, right? Like, because I'm a dude and, you know, Daisy parents, like it or not, they do treat boys and girls differently. And that's the power of this. That's what I gain from this. And it's like, we, we try to say it's like, We all have a minority experience and we all have a majority experience in different, different ways. And so it's for me, it's always been about empathy and understanding.
1: And solving racism through a podcast. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That
2: that means we can never stop doing this.
1: Oh, don't say that. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) That's the most iconic tagline I have ever heard. We should just put that on everything. We Ugh. yeah, you're right. No, we're no. failing. No. <laughs> <laughs> the world's only Fine. getting worse. At it. <laughs> true, 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 true. So Sonia, if we were to turn back time and go back to a moment in your childhood, perhaps like pre-dance you, team. Pre-dance, 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 pre-dance dance team. Pre-dance okay. team. Maybe this is like when you were interviewing Christy Yamaguchi <laughs> or even before that. What is um what's some advice you'd give to your younger self? I love that question, especially because it's not one that I have thought about before. I
0: think I would probably go to fourth grade Sonia, mm-hmm. who was just starting to realize that things at home were not as good as she, or that the things that were she was experiencing, she needed to tell someone about. Mm. And... I would tell her that she was doing the right thing by telling someone that even though she got in a ton of trouble for it and even though it seems like life was just getting worse and worse and worse and that it felt like, you know, nothing was going to get better, that it does. And that the decision to tell someone then was the right decision and it set off a domino effect that would lead to her survival and her ultimate happiness
2: that's important what what do you think sharon Uh, i mean i feel like we've covered a lot of territory do you think sonia's ready for speed round i think she was born ready (laughs)
1: Sonia, you ready for what speed is round? Speed round.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: that's I'm the scared. Right
0: question.
2: <laughs> Sonia, what is something about you that people don't expect?
0: Um, I have a black belt in Taekwondo.
1: So you can kick some ass. I hope I can kick some ass. Yeah.
0: It, would, like be, it would be a waste of 10 years if I
1: couldn't.
0: <laughs>
2: Even before I knew that, after this conversation, I knew you could kick some ass.
1: So That's true. It's true. What is a book, movie, or show with characters that you can relate to? Ooh.
2: And based on something you said earlier, I want it to be from the South Asian artists and stuff that you were
0: consuming. I know this is a speed round, and this is going to take me a second.
1: That's that's the irony of speedrun. We call it that, but these are like the deep questions.
0: <laughs> oh, Miss Marvel, <laughs> hands down. Yes. Oh, yes.
2: The show, the show yes, or the comic? Yes,
0: yes. The show. I okay, actually okay. haven't read the comics. I'm a bad Marvel fan, but
2: No, that's okay. That's okay. I uh you would have gotten like even more geek cred out of that. But <laughs> I think Kamala Khan and Miles Morales are the two most important pop culture Absolutely. characters in the last 20 years. Absolutely, for sure. I said that far too many times, but yeah. Kamala Khan, for the win, for president. (laughs) Not even funny. (laughs) What's your favorite mom dish?
1: Ooh, maki
0: roti and sag. It is a cornflour flatbread and a blended mustard greens and
1: spinach dish. Nice. Yum. That sounds so good. What is your least favorite food? What's something where if you saw it on a menu or saw it, You know, if someone served it to you, you're like, nope, not eating that.
0: I'm going to lose so much cred here. Um, Anything. (laughs) Pokey. I can't do raw fish.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Well, it's not okay because you live in California and that too is such a California thing. That's
0: the one part of the California stereotype I don't live up to. But I'll drink all the matcha in the world to
1: make up for it. Right. So so do you do sushi or sashimi?
0: Okay, this I feel so white when I say this. Like <laughs> I can do sushi that is not that does not have raw fish. So I'll do like oh, okay. imitation tempura
1: or baked. Yeah. Or like vegetable sushi. No, that sounds awful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never even had imitation tempura like imitation crab most of, most of the
2: stuff you get unless you're going to like the fancy stuff which i know you like sharon it's all imitation
1: <laughs> yeah like every california roll. oh right yes 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 because it's all fake crab got it yeah
2: understood okay <laughs> who's someone out there that you would want to have a chat with on a podcast
0: Ooh. these are really good questions i'm like the speed round part of it is like really intimidating
1: <laughs> yeah it really is it it's designed to be on purpose.
0: <laughs> it would be Rupi Kaur. Oh, yeah, it's a poet. Say more. Um, she is a Punjabi Canadian poet. Most notably, um, her books are Milk and Honey, um, The Sun and Her Flowers. She just went on tour for her latest book, um, and I got to see her in person, which was incredible. But I read her poetry in, I think when it came out, I read Milk and Honey, and it was probably, you know, I might switch my previous answer also for like, would be like Miss Marvel and Milk and Honey would be the two pieces of media that I feel most represented by.
2: Okay.
1: Hmm.
0: It was someone, she just writes so eloquently, and it's such short form poetry, but it was so powerful. Yeah. Um, because she was a sick, Punjabi woman who's talking about experiences of domestic violence and depression and abuse and I was like oh my god you know like I feel so seen and for someone to write these things so eloquently that makes me feel all of these things i think she's just a powerhouse of a person i would love to sit down with her and just get to talk to her about mm. her process and yeah the the healing that has come with what she has written but also the pain that comes with sharing your vulnerabilities yeah. with the yeah. world on such a public level
1: her stuff is really really beautiful it's it's just really yeah it's, it's short form it's almost like these haikus that she writes and and it's it's deep like i've read her stuff and just literally started bawling yeah cuz it's it's really beautiful stuff i'd love to have her
0: Oh my gosh, if you have her, please. Like I would listen to that episode
1: over you can and over come on. and over again. You, you'll, you can come on as a guest host and we'll- Oh my God, I would we'll cry. interview her together. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Yeah, I have like four of her poems on my wall right now. Yeah, I was just saying that. Like her stuff is so beautiful. You can like frame it and yeah. just put it around I've like, already
2: requested her books from the library. So thank you.
1: You'll love it. You'll love it. Okay, last question, Sonia. What does being a modern minority- mean for you?
0: I think it means living my life in a way that is unapologetic while recognizing what the people before me have had to do for me to get to a place where I have that privilege. Mm. So I don't need to feel guilty about the sacrifices that my parents made. I don't need to feel guilty about the the experiences that my ancestors have had, but I can still honor them and acknowledge them while doing what I need to do to be my most authentic self.
1: That's a great answer, Sonia. We this was such an amazing conversation. I didn't know where it was going to go. We started off talking about hinge and dating <laughs> apps only because her parents put us up to it, Sharon. I was supposed to say that's true. <laughs> And you took us to so many places, and it was it was an honor to be able to spend this time with you, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thank you so
0: much. This was such a wonderful conversation, and I love the range that we got to
1: got to have. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I uh, we love the range on your show too, and so we can't wait for you. I, I heard from our mutual friend that you're coming back to the podcast world, so uh, we really look forward to it, and we, we really want folks to check out your show as well.
1: Thank you.
2: I've been Ramin Segal.
1: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.